Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. And if you haven't joined us before, uh, we take the books that are on your bookshelves, blow off the <laughs> dust, and we go through them chapter by chapter. So you can actually say that you read them, or at least, at, at the very least, watched a podcast that went through the books that you should be reading as well. And there so you go. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that, that's our job. And we're in the midst of uh, looking at four different methods of apologetics in this book called faith has its reason and uh inter integrated approaches to defending the christian faith by kenneth boa and robert m bowman jr and so uh we've gone over this book before we really liked it we uh, think that um it really presents uh different cases fairly accurately and completely as well uh mm -hmm. and so the the length of the book shows that and so our pace also uh shows that uh, that it's the case that uh, they have a lot of things to say and of course we have a lot of things to say on top of that as well yeah. and so uh we're in uh chapter six which is we're kind of uh, uh completing the the um uh, points for the classical approach and so the classical approach is kind of uh, codified uh, as focusing on reason and then uh, their their methodological approach is this kind of two-step approach of of using reason to get the unbeliever to uh, uh, see the logical possibility of there being a, 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 a single god and then from there then using uh, um, a historical approach to uh, to show that uh, Jesus is the Christ and he is God and therefore makes the complete package of the uh, Christian case. And so uh, now what we're going to do is we covered kind of the six um, different um, uh, questions that uh, have had uh, that each model has to answer and so uh we've we've done that in the in the past uh two episodes and so now we're going to uh look at the rationality of the christian worldview and and see what uh, the classical model has to say about uh, that as well all right so uh starting off uh, they, uh, our authors talk about the classical approach seeks to show that the christian worldview is rational or reasonable and therefore worthy of belief the characteristic approach that they take to accomplish the taxes is two-step or two-stage argument first the classical apologist seeks to demonstrate that theism the general type of worldview that affirms the existence of one personal creator god and that is associated uh, historically with Judaism, Islam, and Christianity is true. And arguments of the deductive logical structure, proofs, is the usual strict sense, are typical of the stage. Although many apologists in this tradition also use empirical arguments and claim only to show that there are good reasons to think that God exists. And so uh, we'll kind of uh, unpack that a little bit more. As we yeah, so, so basically, as you mentioned now, that this is a two-step approach. So this first step, right, is to show that God exists, or at least a theistic God exists, right? And then the second step or stage of the apologetic from the classical apologist uh, perspective, uh, you know, given the existence of God, which they have various proofs that we'll look at some of those now, uh, the evidence for Jesus Christ and the inspiration of the Bible are sufficient to show that Christianity then is the true religion. So at this stage, the arguments are usually, you know, more inductive as opposed to deductive. So they're not proofs per se, but they're inductive arguments. And in fact, they're typically uh, identical to the sorts of arguments used by another approach that we'll take a look at, evidentialist, right. right, in regard to such subjects as the resurrection of Christ. So this chapter examines the classical methods, that's the method we're looking at, their answer to six questions about scripture, 
other religions, God, evil, miracles, and Jesus. So that's what we'll walk through in this particular chapter, get a good look and a feel for how the uh, classical approach deals with these various six questions. Mm -hmm. And as we go through the the four main types, uh, the, the, the past two episodes that we did looked at um, kind of uh, the six relationships that uh, the CERT method has towards things like logic and philosophy, uh, theology, uh, historicity, um, uh, uh, scripture, uh, and and uh, uh, personal experience. And here are the kind of the six questions that kind of all uh, apologists should be kind of uh, on on the hook for. And so, uh, as Tony mentioned, the six are the scriptures, other religions, God, evil, miracles, and uh, Jesus. So that's uh, that's what chapter six is going to be as we uh, start with scripture as conclusion. Well, one of the most fundamental questions concerning apologetic methods is the role of scripture and that it plays uh, in the uh, apologetic argument. In general, the classical approach seeks to make the existence of scripture as a body of inspiration and authoritative writing the conclusion of the whole apologetic. So, uh, you know, th they're not going to start off with it. They're going to say, uh, here are uh, certain proofs. Here's the the uh, cosmological argument. Here's a good reason to believe that Jesus exists. And then ultimately we find his uh, uh, full authoritative, uh, faith-filled message in the scriptures and so let's uh open that up so that's the end of their apologetic uh, argument is is the scriptures right and so in treating the authority of the scriptures you know as a conclusion toward which an apologetic is directed classical apologists seek to avoid what they believe is begging the question you know by assuming that the authority of scripture and apologetic arguments uh, are directed toward unbelievers so they don't want to beg the question and start with scripture they want to first show that god exists and then move to a conclusion that scripture then the biblical scripture is the correct revelation of god so mm -hmm. these apologists argue that notice reason must judge the credentials of any alleged revelation so reason is key for this particular approach. God gave us our faculty of reason and expects us to employ uh, our reasoning abilities both to recognize his true revelation and to detect the fraudulent revelations of other religions. So that's kind of their approach with regard to scripture. Right. So classical apologists believe that human beings are responsible to use their reasoning facilities to, as First uh, John 4, 1 says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. They deny that testing revelations from God is a manifestation of human autonomy that elevates the mind as the final authority for truth. And so uh, some other methods uh, might uh, might charge them with this, but they say, no, 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 that's not the case. Uh, we're not we're not uh, hanging our hats on human autonomy, um, but uh, th that uh, that this is uh, kind of scripturally based of, of what we should be doing. And so. There are arguments to get into that and and um uh the five views of a book that we uh, recommended uh, uh several episodes ago uh that does a good job of 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 being more uh uh contentious uh than than what uh, we're being at in this book well here rather than just uh, as it is in is reasonable to look at for credentials before submitting to human authority in any given field so it is reasonable to submit to the authority of revelation once it is shown to be well-founded on the basis of God-given rationality. So again, uh, the, the the authority of scripture then is uh, put forth secondary 
and, and rationality, uh, whether uh, we can know it, whether it can uh, um, uh, stand up to, um, to what God has given us as far as our own human faculties. Uh, that's what uh, allows us to approach scripture and say, ah, yes, this is authoritative and I should live my life by it. Right. So first they show that, uh, you know, the first step here is that God is, uh, there is a God, theism is true. Uh, and then that Jesus Christ is, is uh, you know, is, is God. And, and when we get to scripture, then what they're saying is now God has given us uh, uh, reason. And so we can use our reason uh, to uh, this God given reason to show which is the correct revelation of God. And so reason then, as we saw at the beginning of this particular section, shows scripture as the conclusion of their argument, and they don't start with scripture. All right, and then secondly, what is their uh, a view with regard to disproving other worldviews, right? So notice our authors tell us that a worldview is the sum of a person's basic assumptions. Uh, it's either held consciously or subconsciously about life and the nature of reality. So the sum of a person's basic assumptions about life and the nature of reality. That's what uh, a worldview is, kind of a, you know, a down and dirty definition here of a worldview. And they tell us that these assumptions or presuppositions are sometimes only brought to mind when challenged by a foreigner from another ideological universe, right? So sometimes we uh, are not aware of our assumptions or presuppositions until we meet some uh, person, you know, that has a different uh, uh, basis for their particular ideological universe. And so classical apologists uh, generally maintain that while there may be many internal variations, the actual number of basic worldviews, they, they're going to argue here and we'll see it, is really quite limited. There's only just a few, actually a hand, handful uh, that, uh, you know, that they need to consider. And mm -hmm. so that's uh, that's their approach with regard to worldviews. There's just a few. And so we'll deal with the few that are basically uh, 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 present themselves. Right. Right. And so uh, we've gone over kind of the key people within the classical approach as well. And so uh, depending on uh, when they existed, what they were uh, uh, responding to um, or just kind of who they are and what their uh, approach was um, might uh, might inform them and have different classifications, but uh, um, overall uh, um, they're they're going to try and uh, codify and classify these different worldviews uh, to to make it easier to respond um, in a in a general way uh, um, uh, using their method. So there are different ways of categorizing worldviews because of areas of overlap. Sire devotes a separate chapters to eight basic worldviews, Christian theism, deism, naturalism, nihilism, existentialism, Eastern pantheistic uh, monism, and uh, the New Age and postmodernism. Norman Geisler and William Watkins in Worlds Apart in another evangelical overview of worldviews distinguishes seven over uh, worldviews uh, with their lists differ in some respects from sires. Deism, pantheism, panentheism, finite godism, polytheism, atheism, and theism. So again, uh, depending on how they're responding or in what way they want to respond to, um, you're going to find uh, different ones. And in fact, uh, we can even uh, go down uh, farther and farther here.
Right. And so our authors tell us that obviously there's more overlap here than uh, may meet the eye. For instance, Searle's naturalism is the same worldview as uh, Geisler's atheism, mm -hmm. right? And nihilism and existentialism are, are philosophies that seek to apply the atheistic worldview to human life. Moreover, pantheism uh, includes both Eastern pantheistic monism and the New Age. So narrowing the options then enables the apologist from the classical perspective to show that non-Christians, uh, you know, for them, the fundamental choices that uh, are just a handful, that these are the various few fundamental choices. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis reduces the number of worldviews even further. Right. He re uh, reduces it to three, right? So in broad terms, he held that most, if not all, people hold to some variation of these three kind of views of reality, materialism or atheism, Hinduism, uh, you know, of which Buddhism was a simplification, and Christianity, of which Islam was a simplification. So that's, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis narrowed it down even further to this, these th three basic uh, views. Right, right. So again, uh, wanting to respond in a certain fashion, uh, you know, people would be aghast that Islam is is uh, on on probably both sides is is uh, <laughs> is uh, responding to uh, a, a simplified version of Christianity. But having narrowed the worldview options to a manageable number, whether two, three, seven, or more, the classical apologist then examines the alternatives to theism in order to show that they are to be rejected. The basic strategy here is to show that there are other worldviews. Uh, are rationally incoherent, so they they um, are are false because they don't uh, they're they're not rational in and of themselves. Right, Other, they don't hold together very right, well. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, which you know, uh, uh, Nancy Piercy uh, um, has done in in her book that we went over, Finding Truth. Uh, so uh, th this this is a familiar step um, um, to the show and uh, to other people. And uh, you have um, uh, followers of of Norman Geisler, like uh, Frank Turek, who uh, also uh, looks at worldviews and also um, um, applies this rationally uh, coherency um, to uh, uh, different worldviews that he's responding to as well which sometimes feels a little bit on the uh, presuppositional side and, you know, stealing from God uh, title is always one that I'm uh, kind of uh, chied my teeth at. Uh, and uh, I, I think he just needs to come over to our side and, and, and leave his uh, Catholic brothers. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Well, other considerations may also be pressed. For example, that they are in conflict with specific facts or that they are unlivable, but the characteristic uh, emphasis of the classical approach to refuting non-Christian worldviews is to show that such worldviews are logically self-contradictory and or self-refuting. Right. So the book gives us several examples, but um, we'll kind of pick out one here so that you can kind of get a feel for how this works. So the classical approach to refuting these non-Christian worldviews can be illustrated here with pantheism, for instance. So most non-theistic religions have affirmed one of the many forms of pantheism, all of which in some way identify or equate God with the all, right? <laughs> yeah. So that God is in uh, some sense, the ultimate and only reality. So God is everything, right? So notice Geisler notes that pantheism is a comprehensive philosophy that focuses on the unity of reality and seeks to acknowledge the uh, eminence and absolute nature of God. Uh, in spite of these positive insights, though, 
he suggests that pantheism is an inadequate worldview because it is actually unaffirmable by man. Right, right. Um, and, you know, uh, you might think, oh, this is kind of a belief in the 80s and 90s, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm reading uh, Rosario Butterfield's Five Lies of Our, uh, of our Anti-Christian Age right now. And uh, th- this is a subject that she covers uh, as one of the five about, uh, you know, oh, I'm spiritual. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not religious type deal. And uh, she has a, a conversation with a person who who uh, kind of I am God and uh, we are God together and we are all God and uh, everyone's right except for then when Christianity is confronted in their face and they're like, oh, I can't believe you're being, you know, uh, uh, evangelized and and, uh, you're being brainwashed. Uh, Children run away from your parents because I feel sorry for you. So this is still a belief uh, that's uh, that's being held uh, even today. Yeah. Well, specifically, it is self-defeating for a pantheist to claim that individual finite selves are less than real. To assert, I believe that I am not an individual is to utter a self-refuting statement because it assumes the existence of the individual who says, I. <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, Ayn Rand's uh, anthem. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's no I, it's, it's always a we. You're, you're, you're a dichotomously um, having to, in your own mind, refer to yourself as both a number and also a part of the collective, and so you 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 are 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 trying to get away from this this uh, this individual statement. But then the the, the character I always forget the numbers for it, but uh, uh, learns of of this uh, individualistic uh, uh, breakthrough of the letter I, and so that that unravels the the the, the whole case for for uh, for Anthem. Uh, so uh, someone who says I, while at the same time denying it, is then self-refuting their claim. Mm-hmm. So pantheism is wrongly assumes that whatever is not really ultimate is not ultimately or actually real. Right, and so so there's the there's the rub there with regard right. to it. So pantheism also cannot adequately account for evil. Right, it asserts that evil is an illusion and, and is meaningless since pain. Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the problem here is that how can it be an illusion with the, the classicalists would say, you know, because pain is really felt. So right. it's not. Right. And it's uh, and, and uh, it's unable even to distinguish between good and evil, since in theory, all is one. Nothing can be evil as opposed to good. Right. And so Geisler, for instance, argues that to say that God and the universe are one says nothing meaningful uh, about God and is quite frankly, indistinguishable from atheism. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, wanting to be spiritual, wanting to, to go to the buffet and pick out the salad and the steak and then <laughs> some chicken on top of it and then uh, cap it off with uh, some soft serve ice cream all over everything. So it just it just winds up a mess. <laughs> all right, well, proving God's existence, well, how, how, how does our classical uh, brothers do this? Well, disproving non-theistic worldviews and philosophies of life does not necessarily prove theism, right? So you knock down all the pins and you're like, there, we're the only one standing. Well, hold on, that, that, that might be the case, but how, how are we certain that there's not some other 11th pin in this, in this frame and, and uh, <laughs> we're, we're not able to knock this down? We can't just assume that, uh, you know, you, you've, you've, uh, you've knocked them all down. Well, classic apologists therefore offer a variety of arguments to support theism. In brief, four major arguments for God's existence have dominated the classical apologetics. 
First is the ontological argument, and the second and third are known as the cosmological and the teleological arguments. And the fourth major theistic argument emerged in modern times and is the moral argument. All right, yeah, so those four, so notice classical apologists are careful, though, to issue certain caveats about the use of theistic proofs. One such caveat is that the theistic arguments, as they are popularly understood, are often invalid. That is, that you know, they need to be formulated carefully and rigorously if they are to be valid. Second, most people actually, <clears throat> excuse me, do not need to hear theistic arguments since they are not atheists, right? What they need is uh, evidence that God is the kind of God found in Scripture. And so what we'll take a look at here is three of the four major uh, theistic arguments in this particular chapter <laughs> and focus on how their classical formulation as uh, philosophical proofs for God's existence work, and then our authors want, want to change, uh, uh, put off the teleological argument and discuss that in chapter 10. Right. All right, well, we start with the always fun one, the moral argument. Well, the moral argument relates to the universality of moral experience and holds that unless there is a God, there's no ultimate basis for moral law. If you've seen William Lane Craig uh, um, argue before, um, th this is a favor of his, and so you might not think that uh, from his, his writing, but uh, this tends to be one where he really um, um, harps on or, or, or uh, makes the other side focus on more and more because uh, he, he doesn't believe that uh, there is an ultimate basis for morality if, uh, if there's no standard uh, the, the, uh, you know, uh, moral giver. Well, classical apologists answered the objection that ethical judgments vary from place to place by arguing that regardless of time or culture, there is a built-in concept of normative conduct, a universal sense of ought and should. And so, you know, when you when you um, ask a, a consistent atheist, why ought you do something, then the consistent atheist should say, well, there's no ought, but there there is a, uh, it would be nice, or uh, uh, it, 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 it would work out for the best as far as uh, uh, an ends uh, to a means, uh, we hope. Uh, right. uh, hope might not be uh, within within their their uh, d desired vocabulary, the vocabulary, but right. but uh, <laughs> but a, a longing for an outward uh, uh, expectation there. <laughs> yeah, right. So notice uh, it is true that people can acknowledge the moral law without seeing that uh, you know the moral law as atheistic proof, but this does not mean that such a law could have been, uh, have real validity says the classicalist, right, apart from God. So the real thrust of this argument lies in the fact that when people express approval or criticism of the actions of others, they are behaving as if theism were true. That is, as if there are such things as absolute rights and wrong. And so classical apologists typically argue that one would have to assume this position in order to criticize it as wrong. So notice, as you mentioned, this one, this kind of approach, this moral argument kind of strikes me uh, as really close to a presuppositional approach, right? Really oh, what you're asking is, what has to be the case for morality to be meaningful? And of course, that's a transcendental question, right? That's the kind of questions that uh, presuppositionalists ask about rationality, morality, uh, you know, logic, all kinds of things. And so, you know, I've all this this argument, even if when it's used by classicalists, always strikes me as a kind of a presuppositional approach to oh, to, uh, to argue. 
Right. Yeah. Um, watch any YouTube video where, where Turek is, is talking to college students and talking about this. It's always, how can you say that to, that is wrong? By what's, oh, oh, we don't want to say by what standard, because uh, that might <laughs> make us go look elsewhere. But um, yeah, I, I, that, I, that's, 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 that seems uh, like it's, it's the, the, the one, the, the one potato in, in the barrel of apples there. Just right. feels like it's a little bit uh, off from, from, uh, you know, the cosmological argument there. Right. And, and oftentimes this argument is confused because people take this argument often as saying, so are you saying that an atheist cannot be moral? Right. And that's not what the argument is saying. Right. The argument is saying the atheist has no grounds for morality. Right. 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 In other words, you know, he, he can't really give us a good answer to the question, what has to be the case for morality to be meaningful? Mm -hmm. Right. So he doesn't have a ground. So it's not that, you know, people that don't believe in God can't be moral. Yeah, they can not lie and that sort of thing. But why? Right. And what is the grounds for that? How do you you know, what's the justification for that? Well, right. I just, you know, human human, uh, you know, flourishing. Well, wh why is that such a big deal? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, why not? I don't know. Ant flourishing. <laughs> yeah. you know? or, or just a me flourishing <laughs> yeah I, really <laughs> i don't care what happens after my my you know 70 years but uh i, I want all the stuff before i die so there we go that, that's how yeah. you know who wins right yeah well and and that i mean that's the early parts of romans i mean you, you have romans 2 and 3 talking about uh, about this uh you know even even the the, the gentiles hold themselves up to a standard uh but uh you know you have, they, they, they even uh, fall under uh, its own weight. And also then, uh, why do they hold themselves to the standard? And so that's part of Paul's early introduction of this all men knowing type deal. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty of the classical approach. So the ontological argument uh, is, is uh, kind of probably maybe uh, the one most associated with classical, I would say. So the ontological argument is the only philosophical theistic proof that reasons uh, that reasons is a purely a priori fashion from certain assumptions or ideas as a given. So it's it's right. a it's a, a a thing that uh, just is known. There's no working up to it. Uh, you just have have that uh, have that knowledge of, of right. it. No, I, and and I'm not sure if I would su suggest that the ontological argument is one of their main arguments. I think probably the uh, the cosmological argument. Oh, that's is true. Probably. Yeah is probably one of the main this is one our our, our authors are kind of going to dismiss this one actually as <laughs> being part of, of their entourage of, of arguments here but let's kind of work our way through it so that we can understand what this one is all about yeah so there are many forms of the ontological argument and some are too technical to discuss here very technical uh perhaps one of the simplest forms if any of them may be called simple is based <laughs> on anselm's uh, second uh, version of the argument as restated by many of uh, by many various modern philosophers right and so there again there's various versions actually of all of these arguments that we're going to work our way through here as we go and so this is uh this ontological argument it's based on you know ontology is the 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 idea of being right so God is a being that exists. He's the greatest conceivable being. That's the kind of the basis of this argument. And so here's kind of uh, the the uh, you know premises and conclusion of what our authors suggest are the second version of this argument that uh, Anselm uh, post you know uh, posits here. 
First, the existence of a necessary being must be either A, a necessary existence, or an impossible existence, or a possible but not necessary existence, right? So that's the first uh, premise. Secondly, but the existence of a necessary being is not an impossible existence, because as far as we can see, there is nothing contradictory about the concept of a necessary being, nor is the existence three uh of a necessary being a possible but not necessary existence, since this would be a self-contradictory claim. Therefore, the existence of a necessary being is a necessary existence, and the conclusion then is therefore a necessary being necessarily exists, right? So this is kind of, you know, I I, I kind of see this one as kind of a magic trick, right? <laughs> you, you do all of these definitions and then all of a sudden, poof, God kind of pops into existence as a result of these various definitions, right? Right. right. But I mean, he, he's, he's necessary like that. In order for us to, 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 to see the magic show, yeah. there has to be a magician in order for the magic show to even be here. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, although classical apologists employ a wide variety of arguments for God's existence, most do not accept the ontological argument. Most apologists and philosophers continue to accept the rebuttal that the ontological argument commits the fallacy of deducing the existence of God from the concept of God, right? So if you define God as all the ways necessary for uh, him to exist, then, uh, you know, com coming up with this argument almost seems like a back-end uh, form of argumentation for it. For example, the formulation given above can be criticized by uh, alleging that all point uh, that all point four means is that if a necessary being exists, his existence must must be a necessary existence. This still leaves open whether a necessary being exists in the first place. Right, right. So notice if if we assume that a necessary being exists, right, or that the greatest conceivable being exists, then it seems to me the argument kind of works. The the, the problem, as being pointed out here, is uh, why make that assumption, right? Why do we have to make that assumption? Right? And so that's kind of the issue that many people have with this particular uh, argument. Right. All right. Well, that is uh, halfway through um, our uh, chapter and kind of halfway through our different arguments for God. And so uh, this is kind of a, a good place to stop for uh, this episode. Uh, recollect, uh, figure out uh, what that ontological argument actually meant. Uh, see if you can come up with something better. Publish, uh, <laughs> improve the existence of God and uh, win your Nobel Prize that way. Um, and so... Uh, um, uh, we're going to uh, continue next week then with chapter six, looking at the rationality of the Christian worldview from the um, uh, uh, classical model approach. So hopefully uh, you've, uh, you're starting to kind of see the layout of this book and what uh, the, the next other uh, three um, uh, different methods will look like and uh, the same type of response that each one will make a claim, either positive or negative or both. And, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll kind of, uh, put them in a pit at the end and, and let them uh, duke it out. So, <laughs> well, uh, uh, we'll just say uh, check out uh, caveofthecross.com for um, all the short clips and all the full episodes, uh, book reviews, uh, uh, anything else that I feel like posting up there. And uh, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, uh, uh, and uh, various any uh, other ones, uh, podcast catchers, uh, so you don't have to watch us, but also on uh, Rumble, Odyssey, and uh, of course the YouTubes. So uh, we just uh, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.
We'll see you next time.